Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another Get Genius episode. I'm uh, pretty excited to be talking to Eric Brotman today. He's going to shed a lot of light, a little bit of different perceptions on the world of finance. We're going to talk about retirement. We're going to talk about dealing with debt, running a financially healthy company, how to teach financial literacy to your children, and what about your aging parents? How do we help them? We're going to touch on all of that, get some really great advice, and then of course, send you to get some more resources with Eric. And I don't think that I actually said the name of his website during our interview, so I'm going to tell you that right now. It's brotmanfinancial.com, and Brotman is spelled B-R-O-T-M-A-N, and of course, you'll see that in the blog post and the email that goes along with this podcast, so you can link directly to it. We'll have access to some other tools that he mentions and also access to his book, which you'll hear on the interview. I'm going to go on Amazon right now and buy it. But let me tell you a little bit about Eric. He's super passionate about providing investment, retirement, estate, insurance, all kinds of comprehensive financial planning services to families, professionals, executives, business owners, entrepreneurs, just He's a wealth of knowledge, and and this is something that he's just meant to be doing. He began his financial planning practice in Baltimore in 1994, and he then founded Brotman Financial Group in 2003. And he is a champion for financial literacy education. He volunteers for Junior Achievement of Central Maryland and the Eastern Shore. The book that we will be discussing towards the latter part of the interview is called Retire Wealthy, the tools you need to help build lasting wealth on your own or with your financial advisor, which I love. Some of us have financial advisors. Some of us do things on our own. So I love that this book actually gives you tools that you can implement on your own. It's really simple and easy to execute. So I'm looking forward to reading it. And this was published in 2014, but it is completely 100% relevant to today. He appears regularly on the 11 News Sunday morning in Baltimore, W. Ball, W-B-A-L, and he's interviewed um, on ABC News. He's done a segment regarding the effects of a Brexit for investors. So I'm pretty sure you can YouTube that and find it. He was named one of the Maryland Power Players by the Gazette of Politics and Business. And he was also named one of the very important professionals by the Daily Record. So, and he is, and he's awesome to talk to. He does make financial planning and learning really fun and easy. So there's some myths that I think are dispelled in this interview. So check out for those. We, you know, we talk about like owning a home, for example, is, is it the best investment? Is it not? So listen out for that and just all kinds of great things. So I feel like on just one of the questions we could have talked for an hour and I would have kept picking, picking, picking his brain, but I wanted to at least cover most of the things that he's an absolute genius at and then allow you to go research, find out more information about him, read his book if you are so inclined to do so because he definitely has so much incredible knowledge. And for me, what makes it exciting is that it's simple and easy. Give it to me in layman's terms (laughs) because then I'll actually execute. All right, enjoy the interview. 
Hello, Eric, and thank you so much for being on the Get Genius podcast. I'm laughing a little bit right now because we just tried this, listeners, and uh, (laughs) I had a little malfunction. So we're starting again. I thought there was some awkward silence. I thought maybe I said something to Eric, but he's back, thank goodness, because he has so much amazing genius to share with us. So Eric, thank you for being patient with me and being on the show. Of course. No, technical difficulties aren't going to stop us, Summer. We're ready. Let's do this. That's right. We're ready to do this. (laughs) You know, there's so many amazing things we're going to talk about in the world of finance. I want to hear how you shifted from being an English major studying romantic poetry into, you know, transitioning into this world of finance where you're an author and you've got a business all based around helping people figure out how to be financially healthy. So how did that happen? I wish I could tell you it was by design and that I was a real visionary, but I can't. It was happenstance. First thing, I I went to college thinking about economics and business and so forth and wound up just falling in love with the liberal arts. And so I did English and I I took psychology courses and and I really just enjoyed studying essentially communications, written communications, doing a lot of speaking, doing a lot of creative work. And then when I came out of school, I went directly to work for a brokerage firm in their legal department because like all English majors, I was either going to teach, write, or go to law school. So law school sounded like the option for me. I went to work for a brokerage firm in the legal department and fell in love with the brokerage business. And within a year of graduation, had started a practice within a larger firm. It was a bizarre transition, but a really fruitful one. And you just found this passion for it, this interest, this intrigue that you just kept going? Well, some of it was a passion and an intrigue. And some of it was, I I did a battery of aptitude testing at a uh, a facility called Johnson O'Connor. They're around the country. And they did a battery of aptitude testing to help point me in the direction of various careers that I would like. So I had already narrowed down based on where my strengths, my natural strengths were and where my weaknesses were. So Summer, I knew, for example, I was never going to be a neurosurgeon because my aptitude for tweezer dexterity was fifth percentile out of 100, and that's not good. (laughs) Yeah. I have so many questions for you, and I'm like, where do I even begin? Because I think that anything to do with finances can be really scary for a lot of people, as you know, and I'm sure you've met with and had conversations around all of these fears. We certainly have, although most of the fears are due to a lack of understanding, a lack of confidence. It's much like the fear that I would have if I looked under the hood of my car or or tried to take apart my furnace. We all fear what we don't understand or what we haven't really been trained on. There's no formal education on financial literacy in this country. Very little. Which is so crazy. And it's so critical. I mean, people are going out there to make money to survive, and then they don't know what to do with that money. It is an absolute gap in our adulting readiness. There's very few ways to fill it, right? I mean, you have nonprofits that are trying to do this work. You certainly can learn from clergy or from your teachers or from your parents, but not everyone is blessed with those kinds of relationships. And certainly, if you're using your folks as a role model, I don't know about yours, but mine are not always great role models. They, you know, they make mistakes like everybody else. So it's about having a healthy understanding and demystifying some things that are complicated, I dare say, almost on purpose. So how do you you know, something that is, can be for aging parents or even talking to your own children and preparing them in the world of of finance. How do you discuss that? Because I feel like it's either something that people will avoid, they don't want to talk about it now, or it's a very sensitive topic. For example, if you have parents that maybe haven't set themselves up for retirement the way that you think they should have, even yourself, you may not know how to set yourself up for retirement. So how do you even 
begin that conversation. So let's take the example of, you know, somebody talking to their children and then maybe the example of somebody talking to their parents. We always start intergenerational conversations qualitatively rather than quantitatively. And the reason for that is that the numbers can really play a role and impact the outcome of a conversation. So for example, for parents talking to their kids, if kids hear that they're inheriting a sum of money someday, for example, that sum of money may sound extraordinary. It may sound life-changing. It may also not happen if mom and dad get sick or other things occur. And what you don't want to do is disenfranchise your kids and have them not work thinking, oh, there's a gravy train on its way. So it's, it's real important. And, and of course, the flip side of that is true. If mom and dad don't have a lot of resources, then it's an embarrassing thing for mom and dad to have to talk about. So we start qualitatively and we take a step back and we talk about what's really important to each person. What's important about the, the values? What's important about family? What's important about, uh, about leaving a legacy, whether that's financial or non-financial? And right. you can get everybody comfortable and talking and on the same page and feeling good about each other. And then as you need to, you can move into the, the legal aspect or the tax aspect or the financial aspect. But I think you have to start with the relationships. That's much more important. So, you know, in talking about aging and retirement, you have something that you call graduating into retirement. What does that mean? What should we be thinking about? If you look at the word retire, to retire is to retreat or disappear. And I know no one in their right mind who would sign up for that voluntarily. So this idea of working 50 and 60 hours a week until you're X years old, whether it's 65 or some other arbitrary number, and then suddenly not having a purpose to get out of bed, and being put out to pasture, which, by the way, was the way Otto van Bismarck created retirement. I mean, retirement was created as a way to get rid of what were considered extremely elderly people, and they were 60. Yeah. So I believe that retirement should be the culmination of careers worth of efforts and of lifetime learning, but it should be going towards something, not away from something. I think part of the retirement plan has to be, what are you going to do when you are summer 2.0? What is the next chapter of your life going to look like? What do you want it to look like? If you're financially independent, it may not have to be for profit, for money, and that's okay. It might be that you have a, a cause that, that is near and dear to you or that you have grandchildren or that you have a travel that you want to do or that it doesn't have to be for money. But you have to have a reason to get out of bed every morning or you will stop. Watching daytime TV and playing shuffleboard is not a good way to get through life. <laughs> I'm so glad you said this. And it's funny because I was just at an event and I was listening to Sherry Salata speak, who is the co-president, was the co-president of, of Harpo and Own Network, all of Oprah's companies, the executive producer of the Oprah Winfrey Show. And she had said that, you know, she's, she's 57 years old. And she said, so many people have this mindset of how they're going out, you know, and how they're like, how it's ending. They're thinking of all the things they're going to stop doing instead of really looking at it as this next chapter in life. I mean, your midlife, there's so many things that you can keep doing and, and growing into. I think we're going to see a shift in this country, not only of work, but also of education. The idea of spending an exorbitant amount of money on education in the years between 18 and 21 or 22, and then graduating with enormous debt and no experience or very little, going into the workforce for which you are now well-trained and suited, you will be a dinosaur when you're 30, 35, because if you don't keep up with education, it changes too fast. This idea of getting a degree and then being set is long gone. And, and I, I think we need to be lifetime learners 
and lifetime earners. I don't think it's possible to put these into chapters in the same way. It just doesn't work because to be 35 and looking for work is different than to be 55 and looking for work. And age discrimination is illegal and so forth and so on. But the, the fact is, it is much more difficult to find work when you are more senior in your career because of the fear of having skills that either aren't kept up to date or having a short tenure ahead. Speaking of which, if we take a millennial, what are the things that they should be looking at when they're choosing a career or job? Well, millennials, first and foremost, are already changing the workforce and they're changing, they're changing our country in a, in a lot of very positive ways. I know they get beat on a lot, but the fact is they're doing a lot of positive things. One, they are the first generation to not only be free agents, but to know it and understand what it means. So what I mean by that is the greatest generation, those folks worked for the same company for 30 years. They got a gold watch, a pension, and got sent home. Then you have Gen Xers and Gen Xers and baby boomers even. It was more of a continuum, but there was still this idea that Social Security and pension is going to play a role. Millennials have no illusion that anyone's going to help them at all. They are completely on their own and they know it. And so they are planning for constant career transitions and constant evolution professionally. I mean, you've heard millennials talk about the side hustle and all these different kinds of things, and they're working on they're working on second consulting gigs in addition to their full-time job, and it frankly makes a ton of sense. It keeps you relevant, keeps you marketable. The only downside to changing jobs a lot is that companies are afraid to hire folks who've jumped around too much, so there's a fine line. But building that career vitae is something that millennials get. I mean, they've been building resumes since they were old enough to, to take their first job. Yeah. You know, you've got me thinking about my own children and what we can teach them. Our age range is 11 through 15. Okay. What are the things, and, and we've got a lot of entrepreneurs and parents that listen to this podcast. What are the things that we can teach our children in terms of being financially literate? I think first is to be a good role model. Uh, if, if you have two spenders in the household, if both their mom and their dad are spenders and they're constantly you know, paying off one credit card with another, they're teaching their kids to spend first and, and worry about it later. So that's problematic. Making good decisions in terms of not only buying patterns, but understanding that sometimes you have to wait for gratification for something. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of allowance, though I do like, particularly for your 15-year-old, I love the idea of, of having some either a summer job or internship or something and if that's beginning, one of the things that I'll suggest is that you teach your kids how to put the money they earn into three different buckets, three different pots. One of them is to spend now and have fun with. One of them is to spend later to work towards something that's a bigger goal, but attainable. And one is maybe something for charity. And by doing that, you can help teach the value of money, not just how to spend it or how to manage it. The other thing is, as soon as your 15-year-old has a W-2, he or she needs a Roth IRA. And if they're willing to put a little of their own money in, that's even better. But either way, mom can match or mom can put the money in as long as it's under the, the W-2 limit. And that'll grow for the rest of their lives with no taxes. And that's so great. And he is starting his first job this summer. <laughs> well, then you can work out a match, even if it's a, you know, a 10 to 1 match. Say, look, right. if you put in $200, I'll put in 2000 and it'll grow forever. Whatever the, the number is, is really irrelevant. It's, it's about starting early. It's about getting it done. And it's an account that he can fund for the rest of his life and never pay taxes on. I love that. That's so great. You know, if you're in a position where you're going to leave your kids a large sum of money, whatever that means to you or to them, you can find ways to leave some of it in charitable trusts or in donor advised funds or, you know, for really wealthy people, personal foundations or other things where you can have the kids be responsible for making the gifts. 
and it teaches responsibility. But that, that really does require some, some deep pockets. You're probably thinking about paying for college at some point, too. And if that's, yeah. if that's true, um, I would say first avoid UTMA accounts, custodial accounts for the kids. Mm-hmm. Any money that's actually in their name is going to hurt them dollar for dollar on financial aid applications. Oh, okay. That's not true for 529 college savings plans or prepaid trusts because the kids don't own those. The parents do or the grandparents do. And so if you're not funding a 529, it's probably worth doing and starting to have real conversations. The other thing you can do for your son is when it comes time to pick school, explain the difference between a state school and a private school and, and what that might look like because These kids are getting offered huge amounts of money in loans that they have no concept what it'll feel like to pay back. We've had folks come to our office with several hundred thousand dollars of student debt. You're not talking 10 or 15 grand. It might be $300,000 between undergrad and grad school. It's like having a house that you're paying for for the next 30 years but can't live in. Yeah. I know a lot of people in their 40s that are just now finishing off their paying their student loans, some of them in their 50s. Yeah. And they're paying for their own kids at the same time. And mom and dad are getting older and they're worried about them too. I mean, the the sandwich generation has it very, very tough. I don't know how old you are. I'm not going to ask. I know better. But if you're a Gen Xer like myself, we're really in a tough spot. We are the first generation not to thrive financially as well as our parents. And in addition to that, we are the most likely generation yet to be caring for an aging relative and a growing relative at the same time. Let's talk about a few solutions. So reducing debt, whether it's student loans, credit card debt, Unfortunately, people have it. They do. I want to talk about, you know, solutions to that and then solutions for, you know, I've got several friends who have aging parents and, and some of them are, you know, they, they did the right things and, and they're retired and they're totally self-sufficient and some are not and they're relying on, on their kids to help support them. What are some solutions to both of those things? We can start with the debt first. Getting a handle on debt requires first taking inventory and being real honest with yourself and your spouse about where you are. Don't hide a card, <laughs> you know, make sure that you're, you're having it all on the table and then start to order and prioritize those debts based on interest rate, based on payment terms, based on uh, taxability or, or tax deductibility of interest. If there's a way to utilize tax deductible debt, that's better than non. Sometimes you want to figure out, do we have resources that we can tap into that are lump sums where we can use money to pay off some of those debts? Do you have the resources? Do you have cash value in your life insurance? Do you have equity in your home? Do you have something that you can use? And, and home equity lines are no longer a panacea because as of the tax act on January 1, they're no longer deductible under most circumstances, okay. but they're still better than paying Visa 18%. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, some of it comes down to that and then having Use a computer program, either use your financial advisor or, or do it yourself. You can get Quicken, use it, it's $60, and it will do a debt reduction plan for you that will help you figure out not only what you need to send to each debt, but how long it's going to take. It'll print out a schedule for you, whether it's going to take a year or 12, and it allows you to have accountability and to keep on it. And we've done that for some right. of our clients. And the first thing we do when we sit down together is say, well, how, how's that going? Let's take a look. Because it's like you don't pay a personal trainer and then eat Big Macs on the way to the gym. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. And that was Quicken, you said, to, to do that. Yeah. Quicken. We'll, and we'll provide a link to that just uh, for listeners that, wanna, that need or want to do that. That's first. And then when you talk about your parents, for Gen Xers specifically, but for those of us who have parents who are getting older, having frank conversations makes sense. And then potentially doing some things to protect ourselves from our parents aging and not having resources may make sense. For example, 
if mom and dad can't afford long-term care insurance, we can buy it for them. That will protect us in the event they wind up running up big bills or we wind up in care decisions where we have to decide are they living with us or living in a facility that we wouldn't want our parents in. That's something that you would think about at what age, though? Well, in a perfect in a perfect world before 60, but the reality is some of these options exist longer than that. And just making sure that your parents, if, if they haven't, have them see your financial advisor. Have them get a real appraisal of where things are. Have them understand all of the strategies that are so scary in the media. You know, there's, there's lots of strategies that prey on seniors. And seniors have a right to feel nervous about a lot of that. And you really have to do, you, you have to do some research. But help your parents through it. You know, the concept of a reverse mortgage is not a dirty word. It is being sold in predatory ways at times, but it's not by itself a bad strategy. You just have to understand it and use it right. Same thing with, with annuities or other contractual income. You know, that might be a good solution. The problem is that they've been sold by folks who really weren't fiduciary advisors for so long that the public is skittish. They've heard the horror stories, and I don't blame them for that. I do think if you know who you work with and, you, and if you go in as a family and you don't ask mom and dad who are 83 years old to, to go in and navigate something that complicated by themselves, but you do it as a family and make decisions, as long as you're honest with each other and have that kind of communication, it can work. There's solutions. Let's talk about owning a home. Yep. Most people are certain that you know this is the best investment. Can it also not be a wise investment? Well, it's not an investment at all. Let me flip that script for you too. Real estate's a fabulous investment if you don't live in it. If you live in it, <laughs> it is a wildly expensive place to live. That doesn't mean don't do it. I own a home and I believe in home ownership, mostly for psychological, not financial reasons. There's a whole generation here who hasn't bought homes yet because we talked about the millennials changing jobs. Well, if you might be in Atlanta this year in Salt Lake City next year, you better not buy a house. But for folks who have put roots down and they have kids in the schools and all these things, it's great to own a home if you don't overdo it, if you don't overimprove it. Don't think that a mortgage payment is the same as a rent payment. It's not. Mortgage payments, while they have some tax-favored features to them, they also come with needing to pay to fix everything that breaks and everything breaks, whether it's your driveway or your roof or your washer and dryer or whatever it is. Homes are not a good investment. Historically, real estate might appreciate by 2% or so a year. If you are owning it to rent it and you can charge more rent and have your mortgages paid down, whether it's commercial or residential, it's a terrific investment strategy for the right people. But owning a home, don't do it for financial reasons. Do it for psychology. Do it for nesting. Do it for your family to have roots. Don't look at it as something you're going to make money on. That happened for a little while during our adult lives, and we have to unthink that. And I'm hearing a lot more of that. I will say, you know, th there is that psychological thing of just knowing, I, but I own this home, you know, but I know, I do know several people that own properties, but yet they're the place that they live in, they're renting and they own those other properties for the actual investment because they can, you know, create a good income and cash flow on that. So it is interesting to hear that. And it is a big conversation now. And a lot of people say too, you know, you're, you're pretty much renting it from the bank, especially if you didn't buy it outright. There are cases that I've heard, particularly in big cities. I've heard a bunch of this in like Chicago area and so forth, where seniors have paid their homes off. They've paid their mortgage off and can't stay in their homes because the real estate taxes are too oppressive. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine working for 30 years to pay your house off and then not being able to afford to stay because of the taxes. There are states, I mean, California, New Jersey, New York, there are Connecticut. There are places where that's a real problem. And so this idea that you're going to make money on your home, it does happen sometimes. 
But when you factor in what you've spent on everything from window treatments to wall coverings to you name it, you're not coming out on the positive end in most cases. You're just having a nice place to live. And I don't want to downplay that. That's important. But it's not an important financial decision as much as it's an important personal one. I want to shift a little bit into having a financially healthy company, being that we've got entrepreneurs, business owners listening here. Let's start with a new business owner. I think that's probably, I know for myself, you know, many, 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 many years ago, that's probably one of the the biggest lessons you will learn quickly and often because you've made terrible mistakes (laughs) is running a business and thinking you know how to manage your finances. There are so many young entrepreneurs today that are starting up businesses on their own, what is essential for them to educate themselves on? Or how do they find that education to actually have a financially healthy company? I think all new business owners enroll in the school of hard knocks, Summer. <laughs> we, we all did. Um, and, and for me, I was no exception. I think when you're looking to start a company, in a lot of cases, you're going to have a hard time getting financing for that. Banks don't want to talk to you for two years. You're not going to get lines of credit unless you tie them to your personal resources. And I think a lot of folks have to go into some debt to start a business a lot of times. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It is an investment, and there are ways to take advantage of that. But you have to be pretty savvy about what's plan B if this doesn't go well. Not that you go into a business expecting it to fail, but you have to understand it could, and then what's plan B? That said, you need to have a really, really good tax advisor. Someone who can work with whether you form a limited liability company where you make an S-corp election or even you're a sole proprietor, having a good tax advisor is going to make a difference because there are things in the tax code that don't face folks with just a 1040. I believe you get what you pay for in that department as a business owner. Have a good tax advisor. Have a good legal advisor. You know, when you set up your company, set it up formally. Do it in a way that does protect you for copyright issues, for ownership issues, particularly if you're going to have employees or any partnership or multiple owners at any given point in time. Protect yourself from all those what-ifs. And then in terms of the financial side, you want to have a healthy balance sheet and a healthy profit and loss statement. And it generally doesn't happen right off the bat. So you want to have a business plan for the first two to three years. And it's really almost a disaster survivalship plan. How do we survive this launch? until we hit that critical mass where we have enough clients or customers or consumers to pay the bills. You know, do you share office space? Do you use virtual space? Do you hire people? Do you use a virtual assistant? Do you work completely yourself and it's a, you know, 80 hour week and and you just launch yourself? Is there a storefront or is it, you know, are you behind a a headset and a phone? Understanding what the different expenses are going to be to those different models. I know for us in 2003, when we launched the company, You know, I had two full-time employees and 1,800 square feet of office space that I shared with another company, and I was scared to death. Everybody's checks had to cash, even if mine didn't, even if I had to hold mine for three months. You know, it's different whether you're starting something that involves a storefront or that involves employees. You want to make sure that you do all the right legal and tax work first. Dig the moat before you build the castle, so to speak. Yep. And then for growing companies, having working capital is so important. And whether that's private equity, whether it's venture capital or seed funds, or whether it's just a line of credit at your local bank or credit union, Mm -hmm. knowing that you have an emergency fund where you don't have adverse debt and you have access to capital if you need it either for R&D or positive expansions, or whether it's because you had a tough quarter or a tough year. And just knowing that you have that lifeline matters because revenues will fluctuate. If you're going to have more than one owner, 
don't skimp on the buy-sell agreements and the partnership agreements and the stakeholder agreements and the non-competes and non-solicitation agreements and all the stuff that lawyers will advise you to do, don't skimp. It's much easier to get into a, a corporate marriage than to get out of one just like any marriage. So you want to know that on the corporate side, you've done what you had to do to protect your family and to protect your company and your employees and your customers from potentially a disagreement with other owners. And, you know, like you said, finding those right people on your team to do this. I mean, we we have that. The thing is, is like it takes the pressure off of you to make sure when you have somebody who's getting all those things in line for you, because there are a lot of things that you're not thinking about when you're focused on your business and growing your business. Well, and one of them is your personal planning, too. So a lot of times we tell business owners, don't have the cobbler's kids be shoeless. Make sure you've also taken care of your own. And so that means make sure that you've done your personal financial planning in conjunction with the corporate. Your personal taxes and corporate taxes should be done by the same CPA because they're inextricably linked and it's an important thing to do. Your legal planning does not have to be done by the same firm or individual, but they sure have to know what one another are doing. And the financial side is true too. I mean, you might have one person who's handling a, a company retirement plan and somebody else who's doing your personal planning for your family, and that's okay. They sure better be on the same page and know what one another are doing because there'll be waste if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of setting yourself up and, and taking care of yourself personally, your most recent book is called Retire Wealthy. And I just really want to make sure that you can talk to us about that because I know I'm going to get a copy myself. But I think it's you You have so many great things in there. If you can just share a little bit of it with us, and then we will make sure to provide a link to that book as well. But it's called Retire Wealthy, The Tools You Need to Help Build Lasting Wealth. Obviously, we all want that. So please share. We do. And Retire Wealthy, when I came up with the concept, I was a, a little concerned about the title. Because when people hear the word wealth, it conjures up something that most of us don't feel. In fact, I quote the great philosopher Chris Rock in my book, who once talked about Oprah Winfrey and said, if Bill Gates woke up tomorrow with Oprah's net worth, he'd want to jump out a window, Um, (laughs) which I thought was brilliantly funny. The fact is, wealth is different to everyone, and I don't know anyone who thinks they're wealthy. So the concept for us in writing the book, I wanted to change the script for retirement and have it be going towards something rather than away from something. And secondly, the ability to retire wealthy means the ability to live with the absence of work. It doesn't mean to not be working. It means that you're financially independent enough to not have to work so that anything you're doing is for your own betterment or pleasure or what have you, and whether it's for income or not. So there's a lot of tips and strategies, and it's a very easy to read book. It is not a textbook. I try to keep it funny and and keep it moving. The objective behind it was to give folks enough tools, literally, to to do some of this stuff on their own or to know when they might get in over their heads and they should call an advisor, whether it be financial or tax or legal or otherwise. Awesome. And, you know, one thing I want to say is that there's there's so many... People that look at even believe it or not, well, of course, you're going to believe this, but, you know, even people that are that are midlife that go, well, I don't have to worry about it. Most of their life, they've said, I don't have to worry about retirement yet. I don't have to worry about that, that plan yet. And then all of a sudden they get to that (laughs) phase and it's like, oh, crap, I haven't done any of that. For the younger listeners, if you could just shed light on, you know, how important is this? And then for those that maybe haven't, you know, are well into their 30s, 40s and have not executed some type of a retirement plan, what can they do? Planning to retire or just planning to build wealth is a marathon, not a sprint. 
And so if you have a longer period of time to get the race run, it's going to be easier on you from a pacing standpoint. So for folks who are younger, starting early, getting in good habits, avoiding adverse debt, selecting the right employee benefits, and just being on the path so that they're they're making good decisions at this point, that's what's important. Uh, for folks who are mid-career, if you're 40 to 55, 40 to 60, you're in your highest earning years in most situations. That's when you need to be tax smart and you need to be putting away an enormous amount of money. And you know, 15% of what you make is a baseline. Anything less than that is a recipe for disaster in almost every case. And that'll include company matches or profit shares or stock options or anything you're blessed to have. But it is absolutely important to be putting away a lot of money at that point. And then as you start to get towards 60, making sure that that you've got your estate planning done, not so much because you're worried you're not going to wake up tomorrow, but because you're in a situation where you have less time to plan. You want to make sure things are titled properly. You're a target. So if you've built some wealth, you need to have the right liability coverage and the right legal documents and things that maybe you didn't think of when you were 25. Right. And so it's it's truly a spectrum of services that begins with very basic, like we talked about your 15-year-old, and then gets into the more complicated for you. And then when we start talking about your parents, it's a whole different slate of issues, but they work as a continuum. You've shared so many great things. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this and we'll have it all in really great bullet points and in our blog post and in our email that goes out with this interview. Eric, you've been so awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I've learned a ton and I know that our listeners have as well. I've enjoyed this. You are most welcome. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests. 